Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for everybody that's here and those that are um, going to be listening online. I just, I just pray for everybody. I pray that what we discuss that would be pleasing unto you, that your Holy Spirit would surround us, me as I teach, um, just to have clarity of thought and to really know what it is that you are revealing in your scripture to us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are looking at um, Luke 14. This parable series, really what we're trying to do is look at certain parables that Marsha and I have picked out and just unpacking what the kingdom looks like, kingdom insights, you know, through Jesus's teaching. And last week when she spoke, um, Marcia taught about, you know, it costs everything for us to be part of the kingdom, but the reward is so great as well. And this week, it almost feels like it's going just a little bit further. I got off the phone with Marcia the other day and I said, I don't, I don't walk away from my own lesson here thinking, Ooh, I'm such a great Christian. I actually think, Oh, you know, so this is going to be a little bit deeper punch of what does it cost to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple and what are the rewards of it? And, and what is the expectation of kingdom, you know, being part of the kingdom as a disciple? So we're looking at the great banquet today. And then, um, but before we start, I want to read in scripture. If you open up to Luke 14, I want to set the context. I think that um, it's important when understanding the banquet that we understand the context. So on your outline, there's three questions and I want you to be noticing the questions as I read um, and thinking about them so we can have a good discussion. Um, the first question is what is happening at the Pharisee's house? Kind of describe the setting. So be thinking about that. Why is Jesus there? What's the purpose? And how does he handle the situation that he's faced with at the, the Pharisee's house? And then in verses 7 and 14, notice who Jesus is um, teaching and what is the topic of his teaching. So I'll start by reading. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he says to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and then you will so be repaid. But when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, so question number one, what do you see happening? What's the setting? And why is Jesus there? We can. Well, who wants to know? I mean, is it? Jesus' reason for being there or the Pharisees' reason for having him there? 
What do you think? Completely separate. Right. So let's let's focus on Pharisees. What are the Pharisees after? Watching Jesus. Yes, trip up Jesus. Watching him closely. We're getting close in the timing of this parable to the crucifixion. So they're after getting something on him, right? What do you think about the man that has the dropsy? Do you think he was placed there at the Pharisee's house? Like as a stumbling block to see what Jesus would do. It was the Sabbath. What do you notice about Jesus? How does he handle the situation? He's compassionate and bold. He's compassionate and bold. I would agree with that. What about his, in, in verse 3 there, Jesus asked the Pharisees exactly what they're, they're thinking. Yeah. He turns the table they, on them. Yes, turns the table. Mm-hmm. And part of the boldness. And he's, he's not pretending. He's boldly teaching. So in, in the third question there, verse 7, who is he teaching there? He's teaching the guests. And what is he teaching them about? Humility. Humility. So he's teaching the guests about humility, which I think is interesting. If you invite someone to your house and then they come and start teaching, you know, as as rabbi, this is what they did. They normally would get together and kind of talk about what they believed in and kind of go at discussion like that. But I, Jesus is not pretending he's not being the cordial guest he's being purposeful in his teaching and then how about verse 14 who is he teaching there the host. oh it's actually 12 isn't it sorry about that yes the host in verse 12 he's teaching the host again about humility being merciful, thinking about other people, loving on other people, and also about, you know, external consequences of your behavior on earth. Okay, so let's get into... We think of humility as lowering ourselves, but he says, you will then be honored in the eyes of all the guests. Mm -hmm. And then again in verse 14, then you will be honored when the good-hearted ones are brought back to life again. This is from a different translation. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is saying it's okay to be honored, but don't do it yourself. Right. Yep. All right, so let's look at the parable of the great banquet. <clears throat> verse 15 there. It says, when one of those at the table heard him heard him heard this so what did he what is this all the stuff he was just teaching when he heard this he said to jesus blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of god and jesus replied a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited come for everything is now ready but then all alike begin to make excuses The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. 
The servant went back and reported this to the master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still more room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the country, go to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited to get will get a taste of my banquet. Okay, so let's start at um, verse 15. Again, I'm going to read it. When one of those at the table had heard this, he said to them, Blessed is the one who eats at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now this statement seems innocent. It just seems like, well, blessed is the one who eats. But what is really happening is like the dropsy man that's placed as a stumbling block to see what Jesus will do. This too is a statement that is about the messianic banquet. And so they're trying to say, who are you? What do you think about this messianic banquet and who will be invited? Okay, so they thought, the Jews thought that when the kingdom of God was going to be fulfilled, there would be this banquet and the Messiah would be leading the banquet. And it comes from Isaiah, which we're going to go to in a minute. But what had happened, like the Pharisees had done, like when you think about the Beatitudes, they kind of disarrayed the truth, right? It came about what can you do? You know, it's not about a heart knowledge. So they, instead of saying, when, when we read Isaiah, we're going to see that it was, it was meant to be for everybody, the, the messianic banquet who believed they turn it to, into the elite will be there. It's going to be the elite religious people that are going to make this messianic ba- banquet. So when he says, blessed are those, he's kind of like, blessed are we who are the righteous you know, by our works type thing. So they're kind of setting it up. It's not just an innocent blanket statement. It has purpose. So let's look at um, Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, six through nine. Does anybody want to read that? My version is a little different, but okay. Um, in Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet, clear, well-aged wine, and choice meat. There, He will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery. Against his land and people, the Lord has spoken. That's fine. You're good. So that's where this idea comes from, that in the fulfillment of the kingdom, this feast will happen. Now let's look at where it's referenced again just before that parable. Turn to Luke um, 13. 22 through 30. Can somebody read that? Luke 22, Luke 13. Okay, loud voice. Okay. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. 
For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. My version talks about um, that there will be a feast in the kingdom. They will sit down at the feast that was just added in there. So again, there's going to be surprises in the kingdom, obviously, the first, last, the last, first. And um, just I'm just trying to put in context for you the the um the reason this man said this is because he's thinking about that mess- the messianic banquet, the end times where the Messiah will come and lead this banquet. Michelle, yes. one other, other thing that's kind of interesting is <clears throat> the invitation to this banquet would have gone out a long time before the banquet itself. It wasn't where they just went out and invited them to come in. They would have had a warning. And then the host would prepare the food. And, and whenever he was ready... Then he would send his servants out again to the same people who got those invitations and say, the banquet is ready, it's prepared. So if you connect that to what Michelle is saying about the feast, that invitation has gone out. And now the feast is being held. So that kind of helps to set the scene for this too, when they decide to not come. Okay, they've already been warned. So what, what it's called is a double invitation. That was just where I was headed, that you get invited, you would have accepted, and then you would have been almost invited or warned again about time to eat, time to come, okay? So it's like to save the date. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> save the date. It's a perfect example. Yeah. Well, I just got one in the window. Okay, so let's look at the excuses and break those down. Um, in verse, I have it in, in red here. So, but they all like begin to make excuses. They first said, I have just bought a field and I must go in and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of ox and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So what do you see in all of these that are similar? What do you see in these excuses? I, 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 I. Yep. But I, I see where, who would have bought a piece of ground without already looking at it? Who would have bought the oxen without trying them out first? Right. <laughs> you know, those types of things. So it's just really. They're like silly. It's like, like um, Jesus is being silly. These aren't, none of these are valid. They're all just kind of silly. Like she said in the first one, prior to buying land, especially in that day as a farmer, you would check the soil. You would check the drainage. You would make sure, you know, you wouldn't just buy it. So it's a silly excuse, and they say, please excuse me. And the other one, you know, about the oxen, again, when I was reading about this, they used to test oxen to make sure when they were linked up, they would tire at the same time. It was very involved in buying the animal to make sure they were healthy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you you see that these aren't these are just silly excuses. And the last one, 
is kind of like the worst one. <laughs> because when we just talked about this double invitation, you would not have been married in the time between the meal and the invite. You know what I mean? Like that wouldn't have happened. And what you're basically saying is, I, well, you know what it's saying. I just got married, so I can't come, right? But notice the ending doesn't say what. Excuse me. It doesn't say excuse me. Just like, can't come. Other things, better things. You got better things to do than what, you know, what you had. And, and back in their day, to be invited was a big thing. You were like the guest, the guest of honor. The host had honor in providing the meal for the people. So I wrote on the top, of the next page, what do you think these excuses demonstrate to how the people regarded the host? Disrespect, devalue. It's actually so bad in this culture that they would, it would be like hate. Like I am demonstrating hate and humiliation to you as the host before the, the town people. That we're all just not coming. All alike making excuses that are just absurd excuses. So then when you start to think about this, <clears throat> you think about, well, what do you think about? <laughs> what is this kind of a picture of? It's holding up a mirror to them. Because what's about to happen? He's about to die. And who believes in this? His own Jewish people received him not, right? Mm -hmm. Excuses, excuses, excuses. So then I put, have you ever had plans of your own and had them simply discarded? Where you set up an invi a party invitation, people accept, only not to show. How do you feel? Rejected? Shut down? It might move you to do what? Not invite him again. Not invite him again. <laughs> Cancel the party. Maybe I'd go to somebody else and be like, can you believe they did this? And try to bring them down even further. Get someone to agree with me how bad they are. You know, and if it's about honor and shame like it is in this culture, it, it would be it would be huge. It would be a big deal. Be humiliating. So then let's go and look again at the master's reaction here starting in verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master, all these excuses. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Okay, so what is his reaction? Angry. Anger. But he moves it into what? He's going to make the most of it. He was going to make the most of it. He's going to invite other people. It's a picture of anger to grace. It's a picture of our Savior dying for our sins. The party is going to go on. And the invitation is extended. So what is this parable a bigger picture of? If you think about this in terms of Jews, 
Gentiles, sinners, Jesus. The Jews rejected, so it was opened up to the Gentiles. Right. The Jews rejected. They rejected Jesus, and it was opened up to then the Gentiles. I want to look at um, John 1, 11 through 12. John 1, 11 through 12 reads, He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of husband's will, but born of God. And so this is a picture of that. His own received him not, and he extends out the invitation. But it's also about a bunch of other things for us today. So I want you to think about, I want to discuss, as you think about the kingdom, what do, what do you get from this? What stands out personally from you? What questions do you ask yourself when you read this? Am I making Jesus the priority in my life that it should be? Am I making Jesus the priority in my life that I should be? My question to all of you, have you accepted the invitation? Yes, right? We are Christians. We have accepted the invitation. Are we making excuses to be a part of it? That's what, that's what came to my thought. That's what came to my mind. I, yes, Lord, I have accepted your invitation. But am I making excuses to make it a priority in my life? Am I attending? There's a reality in there, too, that Satan is so busy with worldly things to keep us busy and distracted. And they're good things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, no, I can't, I can't do that because I have this other thing going on, you know. That right. seems good. Yep. Balancing out priority. What is the cost of being a disciple in the kingdom? Balancing priorities. There's no valid excuse about putting it first, putting, putting the kingdom first, putting Jesus first. I want to look up another verse right now about Isaiah 50, uh, 56, 6 through 8. This is another prophecy about this very situation. The title in mine says salvation for others. So this is in the first part here. It's talking about the eunuch saying, surely I'll be excluded. I'm not worth anything. Right. And then um, 
We're going to pick it up in six here. And it says, and the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And this, this speaks to that there's more room. Let's continue on with um, in Luke 14. So the servant came back and reported to the master all the excuses. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets, the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you had ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come, compel them to come so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So then here I think about um, why is the master saying, make them come, compel them to come? When you think about that verse, what, why do you think that is? They don't understand the urgency of it. Okay. They don't understand the urgency of it. More explanation needed. What else? Because there is still room. The kingdom to this point by the Pharisees and the religious rulers has been misrepresented. Okay. So these people that now Jesus is seeking after feel unworthy, unworthy to be able to come. They're the outcasts of society. They're the low man. So compel them to come. Let them know I love them. Right. Let them know they are invited, that I have open arms for them. I have been rejected by my own. I have room in my house. Have you run across people who do? I have a question about um, verse 23. You know, they, they brought in those outcasts, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. They would have been outcasts in that society. But at the end of verse 23 there it says so that my house will be full why um it's it's again it's the me and the my and the i why not say so that no one will go hungry or be left behind i think in a sense it kind of is when i read that and, and this could be wrong you can let me know if you what you guys are thinking too so let me just read it from 23 again. Then the master told his servant, go out to the road and country lanes and make the come in so that my house will be full. Right away, I'm thinking about Jesus saying, um, there's room in my house. I would not say it if it were not so. So I kind of feel like this is um, like a, a picture of the kingdom. Like I want to fill my house. I want to fill the kingdom. More Invite people, invite, you know, like that, or it's not really selfish. It's more like, well, maybe it is. Like, I'm a jealous God. I want people, you know, what do you think, Marsha? I think the whole the whole parable pictures the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so when Jesus says, I've got room in my house for you, I've got room for the very least of you, mm -hmm. even for the last of you that don't think it's important enough even to come in off the roadsides. I've got room for you. 
and I want you to come in. And in a sense, it's, it's almost a call to us to think about those people who are the outcasts, the crippled, the poor, the ones who are by the road that we just drive right by. We don't think about their hearts and their souls, but I have got room for them in my house. It's not the host that's saying this. This is a picture of Jesus calling people into the kingdom. So what he's saying is, I've got room for everybody. Mm-hmm. So there's room at the table, you know? Yes, and, 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 and he just got done teaching them about humility in the first are last and the last are first, you know, to understand that the kingdom is not what they thought it was, this elite people only type thing. Johnny? That we would have compassion today mm-hmm. when we read this right. for others. Right. Mm-hmm. Laura, I was just going to say, <clears throat> the man with dropsy that was healed, it says that he, he healed him and then he sent him out. So he didn't get to stay at that dinner, which is kind of interesting when you hear the story and he says to invite them in. But I was just thinking that it's these harsh words weren't for him to hear because he got to partake in that kingdom of heaven by that healing. Mm-hmm. And this story was, it's meant to kind of say you guys missed it. Right. So he didn't need to hear that. Um, that when we just circling back to the, to the big truth of this section of what's being said here, what comes to mind, well, what comes to your mind? What do you think about? Johnny. Go ahead. Well, I think Johnny hit on part of it already. <laughs> mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I was going to say, even Jesus said in my house, in father's house, there are many rooms. So it meant for everyone to come. So he was, you know, reiterating this. Yep. I, I think about how compelling is my invitation. When people look at me, they've never read the Bible. Do I represent the invitation to the kingdom? You know, for that big personal truth of, of what am I doing? And is my heart open to people who, who I might think are outcasts? Michelle, I think this this is purposely told um, for the elite to so that they recognize how very different. Well, they won't recognize it, but others will recognize how very different the elite are from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, "Come, I don't care who you are," and the elite say, "I don't want you there. I just want us there." So it's like all of you versus all of us and Jesus opens it up so that grace finds a place for all and among the elite there's no grace if you're not part of them you don't get in but Jesus makes room so I think that that's kind of the contrast that it's showing here that he's totally different from the people around him he loves ordinary people like us and the last statement there in red, verse 24, it says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, when I looked and studied this, I found this very interesting. I wouldn't have known without the studying part I want to share with you is that you, all before the yous that were were used were meant to be like singular, you know, the, the man talking to the people. This one is plural. And I'll suggest that Jesus, in fact, is turning to the people at where he is at the Pharisee's house and saying, I tell you, plural, that none of, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. 
So there's there's big truth in it. It just reiterates what Marcia was just saying, that they they were being reprimanded, that this is not the kingdom does not look like what you think it looks like, that there's room. You know, there was a shift there, a shift happened. Any more thought on that before we move to the next one? I think to compel means that it's up to us to evangelize, mm-hmm. teach, mm-hmm. and invite people in and yep. spread the word because they don't know the word, so that's what we are to do. Yeah. But it doesn't mean compel as in twist their arm around their back right. and drag them. <laughs> drag them in. Right. It's to explain it so they understand and understand they are welcome and invited. Mm-hmm. And compelled by your love, right? Yeah. I mean, right. in this well, translation, First Nations version, written by uh, Native Americans, it says, urge them to come so that my house may be filled with people. That's all we can do. Everybody has a free choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Accept or reject. Right. Mm-hmm. It seems kind of like when he sends them out to go grab them, it's like, just grab them and bring them and I feel like that's kind of what God did to me. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't really looking for him, and he came mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go on to the next portion of this. Um, it's at the bottom of your outline there, Luke 14, 25 through 33. The cost of being a disciple is the heading in my Bible. Starting in verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with tens of thousands of men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the others are still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So last week I was thinking about when you guys had concern about um, the man that had hidden the joy. I thought, what are they going to have concern about in this passage? (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) So... um, Let's just start from the beginning and, and, and pick this apart. Because if let's just start there. Who is following Jesus at this point in time? Great multitudes. Great multitudes, large crowds. Okay. And so if you think about other scripture references, what do we know about some of the reasons people were following in loud in, in large crowds, Jesus? Free food. Free food. <laughs> yep. That's John 6, 26 to 27. That's, you can just write free food. Jesus says, you're not here to see. You're here. You need your fill. You need to eat. You're hungry. 
healing. Healing. And that's Matthew 15, 30 through 31. <laughs> so they were come to for healing to, and, and, and in awe to see the miracles, to be drawn into that. Um, in John 6, 15, this is a verse that talks about the, the large masses coming to take him by force to be, you know, the, the defeater of Rome. So I thought that was interesting timing with, with Easter here. So those are some of the things we know. And so what do you think from that? What do you think about why he would make this statement to them? What is he looking for? Or what is he? What was that? Clarity for them. Clarity for them. Um. So let's look up. Does anyone have a phone? Does anyone have a phone? Who would be willing on their phone to look up hyperbole? The definition. Can someone do that? Hyperbole is on your outline. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Exaggerated statements not meant to be taken literally. Hyperbole. That's what Jesus is using here. So I thought, hmm, let's think of another time when hyperbole was used. Can anyone think about it without using that reference? Gouge out your eye. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Gouge out your eye. So if your eyes cause you to sin, then gouge them out. So Jesus didn't literally mean to hate people. Jesus didn't literally mean to gouge out your eye. But what it is, is serious. The sin that your eyes see is serious. And it takes serious, you know, it needs to be taken seriously. And then... Um, here, the discipleship and the following of Jesus, we're going to examine this further, but it's a priority. It needs to take priority. So let's look at um, Matthew 5, 43 to 46. This is how we know Jesus is not. I mean, we know this. We know that Jesus is not saying to hate them. We know this is exaggerated. But I want to look at some scriptures to why we know that. Does someone want to read Matthew 5, 43 to 46? You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? Okay, so that's, we know that Jesus is about love. Okay, and how about John 13, 35? Does somebody want to read that one? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you will have love one to another. Okay, so you'll be known as my disciples when people can see your love. And without looking at Exodus, what do you think that one says? If we're talking about the commandments. 
This one is actually about honoring your father and mother. So um, we know then that Jesus is not saying we definitely understand that. Last night when I left the office, I went into Pastor Daryl's office and I said, well, tomorrow I'm going to be teaching about hating your mother and father. <laughs> and he, he laughed and he goes, well, you know, that's hyperbole. I'm like, I do. <laughs> Pray for me still. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. So, so we know that um, people can probably look at that that are not Christians and say, who is this, you know, and challenge you. But we know, we know what Jesus meant, that he's not talking about hate. Um, a very personal application of that, though, is, like, when I became a Christian, yeah. my mother was horribly upset with me. Yep. Okay? So it comes down to, is Jesus more important to me than these people that are so important to me? Yes. Is he going to be first place in my life? Yep. And I don't know. I, I've been challenged with that through many circumstances through my life. Mm -hmm. Is he going to be first? Yep. We're going to talk more about that. So I'll, I'm going to save my comments till a little bit later. Um, in the shadow of the upcoming crucifixion, Jesus uses strong words to the crowd to help them to understand what? What is he helping them to understand? Specifically, <clears throat> he's helping them understand that discipleship, the cost of discipleship, is serious. And it's not half hearted. And knowing what he knew, that all of his disciples, except for one, were going to be what? Martyred, right? Killed. That what was about to come is not just crowd follow me because I'm fun to look at. It's serious. It's a serious business. And that the love for Jesus cannot be eclipsed by other things. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at where he, when he sent, when Jesus sent out the disciples, he reiterated this, but just a little bit differently. And I want to look at that language. So let's look at Matthew 10, 37. Let's read 37 to 39. Would, would anybody be willing? Matthew 10, 37 to 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay. So... Stated a little bit differently, we can obviously pull from this, this parable, this text, that the, it's about priority. It's about priority of love. It's interesting. This one says, the first part of verse 39, the ones who care only for their own life will fail to find life. Can you say that again? The ones who care only for their own life will fail to find life. When I had studied this and, and going over this, and then I came to Pastor Daryl's sermon on Sunday, it was 
it was a relief because you can think about how this parable should help you to think about where are your priorities and what are you doing? So that's when I talked to Marsha and I, and I was like, well, I don't feel like this awesome Christian, you know, because you really have to examine the cost of discipleship and where you're placing your priority. Are you making excuses? You're in the kingdom. Are you making excuses to come? And what is the cost? But when Pastor Darrell spoke on, on Sunday, he talked about um, the cloud of witnesses that we have. So you think about people who put, you know, our old, our old Testament, you know, pillars of faith, who put this into action of what Jesus is saying. You think about Abraham. What did he do? The huge thing where he put God first. Yeah, Isaac on the altar. Isaac on the altar. How about um, another one I was thinking about is um, Moses's mother to this baby is different. This baby is special and I'm letting him go to you. Moses in general, giving up his situation in the wilderness to come and go before for God's sake, for kingdom's sake. Um, another one in that cloud of witnesses is Joseph. And you think about how he could have easily slept with Potiphar's wife. She wanted him. I'm sure she was beautiful. It was a private situation. But he knew that no eyes were on him, but God's were on him. You know, the cost of discipleship, you know, in, in what it is in our life. And of course, our greatest example of love is Jesus to die, you know, on the cross for us. The thing, except for Jesus, all those other people had flaws, so we can take a little comfort from that. Right. <laughs> True enough. Okay, so let's look at the parables that he told alongside of this, um, this language in verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays down the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Okay, so in the parable, the question is, what does it take to build a tower? What does it take for this man to do this work? Funds, planning, consideration. And what is at stake if the, if the tower fails? Everything for him. Everything for him. His honor, his self-defeat, he's going to be ridiculed. So I want you to think about people you know, yourselves. If you're going to put yourself out there, and you're just going to say you're a Christian and you're going to take, I'm going to take the salvation gift, but maybe later Jesus will be the master of my life. What kind of witness effect is that for people? I mean, it's a serious business. You can see why Jesus was like, large crowds, consider what you're saying here. Because if you're going to go out and be, you know, my witnesses to other people and it's half-hearted, what's going to happen? It's I mean, it could wreck people. It does wreck people. Yeah. <laughs> in the name and confusing. Of, well, in the name of Christ, a lot of things have been done by people who are not yeah. committed to Christ. They, they start out maybe strong. Mm -hmm. and, um, halfway through, they just decide it's not worth it all. And so for those that they were witnessing to and, and even trying to share their faith, all of a sudden, the bottom drops out. There are people who will say, I, I 
knew a, a Christian and I don't ever want to be one mm -hmm. because of that. So let's look at the king now goes to war in verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with the tens of thousands of men to oppose the one coming with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the others are still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In that same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So what, um, what does it take to go to war here again, being reiterated? Enough manpower. Manpower. More planning again. More planning and consideration. Wisdom. Wisdom. Takes others going alongside of you. Now here what's different, as you see it rises, what is the stake of losing the war? Yeah. Death and destruction, hurting others, lives lost. And then in verse 33, we have that reiteration of, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciple. And I am immediately thinking about in Revelation when we talked about this with the Beatitudes too, is there's no lukewarm. Jesus is spitting out lukewarm. You know, and if, and if you think about Jesus, he's already king. He doesn't need the vote. He doesn't need to be popular. He doesn't need a million likes. He needs dedicated hearts of authenticity. He needs people to consider what they're going to do because they are going to be the witness to other people. Um, in Matthew 8, 18 through 22, I'd like to look at that kind of a reiteration of this again. My point of bringing you all these cross references is know that this isn't the first time Jesus brought them up. This is what he's about. Okay, so um, let's find Matthew 8. And let's this, think about um, the calculating the cost as we read this. So anybody willing to read Matthew 18 uh, through 22, chapter 8? When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, so here, uh, what is he saying? What is the cost of being a disciple? Giving up everything. Giving up. It, it's going to be uncomfortable. Even the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place. So, the, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, the commentary here talked about when he says, Lord, let me first go bury my father, is not that the man was actually dead, but I have other things to do first. Then I'll get back to you. Then I will be a full committed. That's kind of what that's talking about. He also probably would have gotten his inheritance if the father had died and been buried. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew sixteen twenty six. Matthew 
someone want to read that? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? So this one I brought up because when you think about um, what what is it cost you to be a disciple? I, I, I'm seriously wanting answers to that. What do you, what does it cost you to be a disciple? Shalane had suggested at the beginning of her, her coming that it maybe costed her some family relationships. Still does. <laughs> How about some of your friends? Maybe you're not that cool to be around. You get unfriended from Facebook. <laughs> she said you get unfriended from Facebook. Maybe not as many likes. Um, it probably costs you some money, right? Maybe some of your leisure activities. Okay, so the point of putting Matthew sixteen twenty six in is to think about and to think about what Marcia taught last week is that even in the cost, there's so much reward. What good is your life if there's nothing, you know, if there's nothing to follow, if you don't have life abundantly because you don't know Christ, because you're putting everything else in priority? There's rewards of being a disciple, right? Mm -hmm. I don't mean to sound proud, but I grew up in one of those fractured families. And uh, through God's grace, I found a man, and we both try to follow scripture, and we're coming up on our 40th anniversary. And uh, my mother's other children, uh, their lives have not resembled peaceful at all. And I don't do that to speak, say that to speak ill of them, right? But because they weren't holding on to God's grace as much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it hasn't been smooth. Right. And that's timely for what we're talking about. I, I understand that you're not saying anything. It's just that, what are the rewards of being a disciple? We look at this and it's heavy, heavy scripture and we're already in. I hope none of you are thinking, oh, I don't even want to go to the banquet. <laughs> um, but we know as mature maturing Christians, that there's great reward in this. One other thing about this verse, what good will it be if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's talking about losing everything. That's mm -hmm. losing your life and not being with the Lord. So Jesus is really putting it out there. What good is it going to do you if you gain all of the things the world has to offer, but in the process... You do not go to heaven. You lose your soul. You have no more relationship with the Lord. Michelle, I wrote this in my Bible a long time ago. If you remember Jim Elliott, the yep. missionary. Mm -hmm. oh. And he wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The cost of salvation is free, but the discipleship and the walk is costly and ultimately so rewarding. I would never turn back. I would never say I regret, you know, effort. Same back to what we said last week. You get put in a situation and you say, I'm so thankful for 
my salvation, for my faith, for the comfort and the peace that I have because of it. Mm -hmm. The cost is high, but it's all worth it. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the big truth of this, of this last parable here? What, let's just summarize what we've been talking about. What is the big truth here of this portion of the parable? Again, I think it's about priorities. Where are your priorities? What is the kingdom being a disciple costing you? I would hope that at times it's uncomfortable, that you're being pressed a little bit. Is anything standing in the way of me being a disciple for Jesus? How do I represent the invitation to come and be a part of what this is. Does anybody have any other thoughts or questions before we dismiss? <coughs> yes. I'm, for me, I'm, the cost is worth it. It doesn't, you know, God doesn't guarantee that we're not going to have prep times, but it's easier to let go of those things. Maybe you don't get invited to the party, and he says he's going to go through it with us. Yeah. If, if that comfort is there. And sometimes it's easier to just let all that stuff go, because you know that you've got him. Right. Life, life can be tough, but... Um, and almost through your heart pain, you develop that even more and more. Right. That's why we can say we thank God for our trials and mean it. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, I ask that we would be the humble women that you have called us to be. I pray that we would be reflective of what you want as people who invite others to come, that people would know through our light, through our life, that we would shine. I pray that you would walk with us in your Holy Spirit, helping us to be the disciples that we need to be in setting a priority because it's not always easy. So I just pray for that discernment over all of us, that wisdom, and that the Holy Spirit would just rest upon us. And Lord, ultimately, I just say thank you. Thank you for choosing me. And I just pray that we can walk out of here thankful. Thankful, but also you know, cognizant and discerning of how we live. And I pray over all of us these things in Jesus' name. Amen.